0: Hey, it's NPR's Book of the Day. I'm Andrew Limbong. It's a simple bummer of a fact that sometimes families just don't stick together. Sometimes it's because of a big explosive blow up where someone says something or does something they can't ever take back. Other times it's more boring. You know, a kid leaves home to go to college or something and people call fewer and fewer times until that thread of connection gets pretty thin. In a bit, we'll hear about a family dealing with the latter from a titan of family literary fiction, Anne Tyler. But first, Pung Shepard's new thriller, The Cartographers, focuses on Nell, who's been estranged from her father for seven years. The only remaining connection between them is that they're both cartographers. And when he turns up dead, sure, the thrust of any thriller is the who whodunits and the whys of the matter— but as Shepard tells the NPR's Alyssa Nadworny, the book is also about their shared obsessions and really finding out what they're a stand-in for.
1: A cartographer at the New York Public Library is found dead in his office. No one suspects murder, but then his daughter, Nell, finds something hidden in a secret compartment of his desk. Why would one of the world's most respected cartographers save a cheap, mass-produced gas station highway map? The Cartographers is the latest thriller from Pung Shepherd, who also wrote the Book of M. She joins me now. Hello.
2: Hi, thank you so much for having me.
1: Okay, so first, will you just tell me a little bit about Dr. Nell? She is this young woman at the center of the story, and like her dad, she's a map scholar, but she's also had a professional setback. She has, yes. So she is a young woman whose whole life and just her
2: greatest passion has been cartography. She's lived and breathed it ever since she was a kid. Both her mother and father were giants in the field, but her mother passed away when she was very young. Nell has basically spent her whole life trying to live up to her mother's memory in order to impress her father, and she thinks also as a way to get closer to him. But seven years before the start of the novel they end up getting in a really big argument over this map that you talk about that she finds in his desk after his death and the ensuing fight is so bad that he ends up firing her and destroying her reputation and so she's been cast out of the only thing that she loves and also the only way she thought to get closer to her father
1: so tell me about that map the one that she finds in the desk It is a foldable gas station highway
2: driving map. I don't know if uh, you remember those. They're a little bit less common now that we all have Google Maps.
1: Many are stuffed in like the side of my driver's side door,
2: (laughs) right? Yeah, bulging
1: out.
2: (laughs) Yeah, and they used to, you know, give them away at gas stations. I think practically for free. You would just walk up to the counter with your candy bar and your your soda, and then you'd grab a map to the next place you were going and continue on. But that's the kind of map that she finds, and so you know, really a seemingly worthless thing. But it turns out to actually contain a very deadly mystery.
1: I want to talk about phantom settlements. You know, sometimes they're called paper towns. What are they and why do cartographers use them? A phantom settlement is a somewhat
2: obscure cartography term that basically means an error on a map. But it's an intentional one a little dead-end road that isn't really there, or a small mountain where the, the land is actually flat. But the upshot is that phantom settlements work like copyright traps.
1: So there's a phantom settlement in the book. It's based on a real story, right?
2: It is. It's the most incredible real-life cartography mystery I've ever heard. (laughs) In the early 1900s, there were these two small-time map makers who decided to make one of these intentional errors on their maps. So they made up a tiny town in rural upstate New York, and they named it using a combination of their initials, sort of like a secret signature. And then about a year later... Their competitor, Rand McNally, released a map of the same geographical area. And to these two mapmakers' surprise, they spotted their tiny town on Rand McNally's map. And so they sued, claiming copyright infringement, because they argued that the only way that their town could have appeared on Rand McNally's map is if Rand McNally had stolen their data instead of doing their own land survey. Because if they had done their own land survey, they would have seen that there was nothing there because the town wasn't real. And Rand McNally said but the town is real. And so these two map makers, they had no idea what to make of that. So they got in their car with their lawyer and they drove out to the middle of nowhere in rural upstate New York to take pictures of the empty land and claim their victory in court. They were stunned to find a gas station, a general store, houses with people living in them, and an official town record in Delaware County administration logs with the same name that they had given it from their own initials.
1: And so what actually
2: happened? What most people think is that Rand McNally rushed to build a fake town there after they were sued because they were trying to cover their butts. But what actually happened was when these two map makers, when their map first came out and there was that tiny town there, a couple of people who live nearby in real towns saw this new name on that map and thought, oh, well, I guess a new town has been made for us. (laughs) And so they started moving there. Usually the world is what makes the map, but in this case, it was really that the map made the world. Wow.
1: One of the things that drew me to the book was it feels like it's also about obsession. Yes. Like being so just all consumed by your passions.
2: I think you have to be a little bit obsessed to be a novelist, probably. (laughs) But I also think... It's something a little bit more universal than that because in the book, without spoiling too much, the map that everyone is obsessed with, for some characters, it's about the map. But for other characters, it's really about that the map is is standing in for something else that they can't have. It's the next best thing. And I think we have all maybe felt this to some kind of degree where if if there is perhaps someone that you care about so much but you can't have them for some reason – Sometimes something else that reminds you of them or represents them to you, it can be almost as powerful as having the person themselves. And so you become sort of obsessed with obtaining that thing.
1: Yeah. Your reaction at the top of you have to have obsession to be a novelist, I kind of relate to that too as a journalist of like I'm totally obsessed with a subject and I research it and I call everyone I can and then I write a story that I'm on to the next thing. What was it about maps that drew you in?
2: You know, I don't know who doesn't love maps, right? They're so beautiful and they're so fascinating. And I don't really know anyone who can resist looking at one that they pass by, whether it's, you know, a place they've never been or a very familiar place. And I think part of that is that we're all hoping, even if it's a map of a familiar place, that if we just look long enough and look close enough there will be some kind of a secret there that we haven't noticed before, you know, kind of like an invitation to to go somewhere new.
1: Oh, I love that. I've started to see maps everywhere after reading your book. Like so many <laughs> things can be a map, like even this script, you know, as I'm kind of taking notes and following this conversation, there's a map in front of me to do that.
2: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Wait, we did, we did just talk about
1: obsession. Shoot, we did. (laughs) Everything is all just connected into one ball. Yep. (laughs) Punk Shepard's new book is The Cartographers. Thanks so much. Thank you so much.
0: Jay-Z, Tom Brady and Tyler. All greats in their field, and all people you cannot trust when they say they're going to retire. Though I haven't overheard as many heated arguments at the bar over Tyler, she's out now with her 24th book, even though she once said she'd never hit 20. It's titled French Braid, and it follows a family in Baltimore through generations. Yeah, this is Tyler's specialty, but what makes this interview with NPR's Mary Louise Kelly so special is that you get a sense of how intimately and deeply she cares about her characters and how she feels it when they either disappoint her or pleasantly surprise her.
3: The majority of Anne Tyler's 24 books are about family. And the majority of Ann Tyler's 24 books are set in Baltimore. Now, if we were talking about any other writer, you would be excused for wondering if they might be stuck in a rut. But Tyler's gift is that each story... Each character is distinct, even as she builds on themes from one book to the next. Tyler's new novel, French Braid, is set, you guessed it, in Baltimore, and it tracks one family, the Garretts, across decades and across generations. And Tyler, welcome to All Things Considered. Well, thank you. I gotta start by asking, are are you stuck in a rut? Or what is it about writing about families and Baltimore families that keeps bringing you back there over and over in your work?
4: Well, I am stuck in a rut. I mean, <laughs> actually. <laughs> I say every time I start a new book, I say, well, this is going to be different. And it generally is not. I think I think that what I love when I'm writing about families is that you get to see these people grating along together that can't very easily leave each other. Mm-hmm. And they have to show their true colors, like, as I always say, like people on the desert island or in a burning building where their real selves come out. Um, sometimes people do split up, families do split up, but generally it's a matter of, of endurance, which is, I think, the, the quality in human beings that interests me the most.
3: Yeah. Uh, describe this family. The Garretts of Baltimore, the dad is Robin, the mom is Mercy, they've got three kids, two daughters and a son. Um, what do we need to know about
4: this family? Well, at the beginning, all we know about them is that although they have no great cataclysmic disruptions in their relationships with each other, they just aren't connected anymore. Uh So much so that at the beginning, somebody who sees her cousin in the train station is not exactly sure that he is her cousin. She just thinks he looks sort of familiar. And the question is, how did that happen? What leads families to get to this stage?
3: Yeah. Well, speaking of not being connected, I don't think I'm giving too much away if I share that the mom, Mercy, moves out of the family house when the last kid goes to college, but she never divorces her husband, Robin. The two sisters, Alice and Lily, they they call each other, they talk to each other, but they don't actually seem to like each other that much. right? I wondered, in a way, You're showing us how they are not connected, but you're also, maybe, am I right in thinking, you're showing us that that love can be expressed um, through the things we choose not to say, through the places we choose not to be.
4: I think you're putting it very well. That's exactly the case, I think. For instance, the mother who basically is separated from the father as time goes on and leads more and more her own life. She knows the thing he's been scared of all his life is divorce, and she's very careful never, ever, ever to mention the word divorce, and everything is just fine as far as the outside world knows, even as far as the two of them know. Yeah. But
3: to your point that that's the thing he's always been scared of, when she when she tells him she needs some space, she's going to be sleeping somewhere else, he says, I couldn't bear it if you left me. And
4: she says, I'm not going to leave you ever, I promise. Um, does she keep that promise? Well, <laughs> in a way, yes. In a way, no. I I enjoyed writing about her. Sometimes I was so mad at her. Weirdly enough, I think the time I was maddest was just her general behavior toward a cat.
3: The cat got me, too. Can Can we just explain what happened with the cat? She inherits this
4: cat. She inherits it. She doesn't want it, but she's being kind to somebody who desperately needs his cat taken care of. And um as time goes on, the cat and she develop a relationship, but she always thinks he's going to go away finally. And when he doesn't, when it turns out, oh no, this cat is just going to have to stay with you. Well, the first thing I did when I was writing this was that I thought, all right, that's going to be one situation in which she does sort of stick with an obligation to another being. And every way I wrote it, it just didn't work. And finally, I had to say, well, I think she's going to get rid of that cat. And I just, I was just heartbroken about it. (laughs) But there you go. She does promise the
3: cat's owner, yes, I'll take care of it. Don't worry at all. And then the second he leaves she drives it up to the animal yes. shelter and dumps it in the crate in the parking lot um and i i felt i'm not surprised to hear that you were mad as as heck at her because somehow that betrayal felt more infuriating than than leaving the husband
4: yes i don't know why that is it's odd
3: <laughs> may i say something that strikes me as i listen to you speak you're talking about your characters as though they're real people um that you can't control. <laughs> like
4: Oh, you, I can't. <laughs> you could
3: make Mercy the
4: Mom nicer. She's you yes. her. <laughs> I know. I, I'm just trying to make you not blame me for what she did with the cat. But no, I I've always felt when I begin a book, it's so artificial and I am I am so clumsy and it's a manufactured lie, I'm telling. And usually about a chapter and a half into it, I'm sort of pushing these people around on the page, and it's a matter of dialogue sometimes, but I'll think of a sentence. One says and then it just seems very natural that the other one would say such and such, although, in fact, I didn't invent that. It's just that the characters suddenly just take on their lives. And then I do feel as if, oh, I'm getting to know so-and-so. I had no idea that she had such and such in her life. Yeah. You said
3: that A Spool of Blue Thread was going to be your last novel, and that, if I'm not mistaken, came out seven years ago, and you this is your fourth that you've written since then. What changed? Oh, yes,
4: yes. Well, I always feel I have to explain that I didn't mean that I was never going to write again. What I was thinking is, I am going to just write this same novel forever. because I'm happiest when I'm in the middle of a book. So at the time that I was saying this, I was writing a split blue thread and I thought there's really no need for any more books from me, but I'm so happy writing this one that I will just endlessly revise it. I'll keep on going. I'll add generations, which is why, by the way, that book basically runs backwards. And what I didn't bargain on is that finally, I was just done. I I lost... (laughs) interest in an earlier generation that didn't have a lot of depth to it and then of course what am I going to do with the rest of my life but write another novel
3: well Ann Tyler I hope that you continue writing the same novel over and over so that we can
4: continue (laughs) reading it (laughs) well thank you that's a very nice wish I I really like that one
3: (laughs) well I really loved this book thank you so much for speaking with us
4: oh I enjoyed talking to you
3: thank you Ann Tyler. She is the author most recently of French Braid. It's out today.
0: That's it for NPR's Book of the Day. If you want more, you can sign up for our newsletter at npr.org newsletter books. I'm Andrew Limbaugh. The podcast is produced by Isabella gomez Sarmiento and edited by Megan Sullivan. Our founding editor is Petra Mayer. The show elements for this week were produced and edited by Ashley Lisenby, Melissa Gray, Hafsa Fatima, Dee Parvaz, Amiko Tamagawa, Hiba Ahmad, Hadil Al-Salji, Samantha Balban, Elena Burnett, and Courtney Dorning. Beth Donovan is our managing editor. Thanks for listening.